This week, what does it all even mean? Like, what's life for? Why do we tell stories? Why do we fall in love? Why do we make art? Why are dogs so very good? If you couldn't tell from the lead-in, I'm talking to Paul Bay, creator of The Big Loop, about faith, masculinity, love, and how to find meaning or happiness when you're predisposed to reject both of those things. It's a searching, intimate conversation, and it's all coming up right here on Radio Drama Revival. Hey folks, welcome to Radio Drama Revival, the podcast that showcases the diversity and vitality of modern audio fiction. I'm your host, David Reinstrom. You know who is down to talk about anything? Like, literally anything at the drop of a hat? It's Paul Bay. The man has seen some shit. He has lived a hundred lives. He has wrestled with demons and angels alike, and he's written about all of it. It was my absolute pleasure and privilege to talk to Paul about his podcast, The Big Loop, an anthology we featured in the previous episode of RDR. We're going to range all over the map here, so I would recommend, for maximum enjoyment and context, that you be caught up on The Big Loop. You may feel the urge to save these episodes and not listen to them right away, to savor them slowly and one at a time, as though they were poems. This is a luxury that I recommend to you, and one that is not often available to me as a curator, uh, but if you marathon through them to get context for this interview, remember, they'll be there in the future for you to return to, like the soft-worn pages of a favorite book. Cheers to line producer Will for inspiring this line of thought. Now, Paul and I talk about some heavy stuff in this interview. Violence, heartbreak, loss of faith, confronting feelings of meaninglessness. But something astonishing about Paul Bay is his ability to make this stuff not a bummer. Please enjoy our conversation. So, okay, Paul, welcome to Radio Drama Revival. What a treat. What a pleasure. Thank you. I'm, I'm so glad I could get you on the show. Oh, thanks for asking me. This is uh, it's always a pleasure talking to you. So I, to start, I want to hear the story of how you and Steve first became friends and how he ended up working with you on this project. Oh, uh, Steve Jin on The Big Loop? Mm-hmm. Um, we've been friends since grade four. No, maybe I was grade four. Right. He was grade three. And he was my br uh, younger brother's best friend. Uh, one of his best friends. And we've, uh, I guess around high school or maybe college, Steve and I actually ended up becoming friends as well. Um, uh, we'd just been like uh, acquaintances through my brother up until late high school, maybe early high school. Um, we'd gone to, we grew up to church together. We, our parents were friends. Um, yeah. And then, uh, you know, he went to film school. And so when I wanted to do the big loop, um, it, it was such a personal thing for me. And I needed someone who, understood my needs would anticipate my needs before uh before me having to explain it and that's that's steve and he he'd always want to take part with me on something to make something together so i asked him hey can you do you know audio design he goes well i i know how to use audio for film i'm like can can you figure out how to use a a daw and he's like okay nice <laughs> yeah and he did it so you hadn't you hadn't worked with steve before creatively on stuff prior to the big loop no no Cool. Good on you for taking a gamble on a friend. Yeah, yeah. I always thought, you know, what's the worst that could happen? We come up with something and then, you know, we enjoy making it. It's a good memory. And it go and the podcast itself goes nowhere. <laughs> sure. So uh, I, have a, I have a structure question for you. 
Um, cause there's, there's this thing that you referenced in an interview that you did with Rebecca Seidel in the podcast review about this episode of Love and Radio, uh, that ended up being about a colony of pedophiles. And when you realized that you wanted, you said initially you wanted to stop listening because it made you understandably super uncomfortable. But from that, you learned, as you told Seidel, where to set the hook in a story. Uh, because by the time you'd come to terms with your disgust, you were kind of curious to hear more about these sex offenders, right? Yeah, so I found out from listening to Love and Radio, when you start, when I started listening for how to engage a listener into a story so that they won't want to turn it off at a certain point, especially if you're writing stories about empathy, uh, making people feel empathy for, usually feel empathy for, the more the protagonist would have a usual type of resistance in terms of like audience engagement, like a pedophile, uh, I noticed uh, um, Nick Vanderkoek We'll do the reveal later and later. We'll sow seeds of empathy first and relatability and then set the hook and reveal this is what the story's about. It's too late for you to turn away now. And I, th I found that fascinating the way he does that. Right. And it's always, it's always different. Um, but I, I started getting a sense of how to do it like in terms of the timing. Uh, in like there's nothing wrong with delaying the, the subject as long as you're hooking them in early. Uh, in terms of like, oh, this is interesting. This person's voice is very compelling. Um, as long as you get there, uh, set that bed of empathy first and then reveal it. So that, that was, that was very instructive to me. Sure. And it, it's, it's interesting how much you like toy with empathy, like whether or not there are certain people that were, were even meant to, I don't know. Some, sometimes it feels like some of the horror comes from realizing that you felt empathetic towards this person. Mm hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You've, you've heard that episode, right? Uh, I have not heard that episode of Love and Radio. I've only read about your experiences with it. Yeah, there's that one, and there's another one where the uh, the mother falls in love with her son. Oh, that that was another hard one. I, I was like, geez, he's, what is he doing? Like, how is he able to do this? Like, how is he able to, not maybe not people like me, but the average listener from turning away? Because I would read the reviews, and I expected a lot of hate towards him. You know, just knowing the, what, what, what iTunes comments can be like. And it wasn't like that at all. People were incredibly... Uh, uh, understanding, uh, maybe their views hadn't changed, but they're, but they, they're like, wow, thank you for taking me into this world. I never knew. That's that's a really interesting way to think about it. A second, a second, uh, like structure question is about the Michael Kim character because between season one and season two of The Big Loop, you retired Michael, like this mediating presence between the real and the unreal. And now the host role is named Paul Bay. Is either you or a character named Paul Bay? Um, and using that first fictive frame allowed you to put Michael right into the story, interacting with the characters and asking them questions. So my question is, what what motivated the decision to put Michael Kim aside and say, no, this is this is Paul now? It was actually a, a literary agent in New York. Um, I can't say who she is, but I, I, uh, someone reached out to me from a, from a large firm um, to, to talk about uh, um, something I'd written a long time ago to see if we could turn it into something. And then she just threw out the question, who's Michael Kim? Is that you? And I said, yeah. She goes, why don't, why isn't it you? And I, I told her at, at first I wanted Michael Kim to be a character that engages with the characters. Um, then she asked me going forward, is, is, that, is that what's going to continue? And I said, no, no, I think I want to stand back and just introduce the, 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 the stories and, and do the outro. And she said, you know, you, real, you realize as an author, you, you're, you're going to be a brand and you might find it easier uh, for future projects to just just be you instead of Michael Kim. Everyone, most people probably know it's you. Uh, and it just confuses the listeners. So I gave it some thought. And the, the final thing that made me switch to Paul Bay was uh, um, if I switched to me, it would prevent me from engaging with the story. Like in the future, 
Oh, so you you deliberately put it as a break on inter on breaking the yeah yeah the the immersion like it's here's Paul and then here's the narrative. Interesting. Why why was that important? In hindsight, I didn't like that where Michael Kim interjected in the story. I did that originally because I was sort of copying uh, Love and Radio and This American Life and all these other shows where you know you, you have the the storyteller speaking to uh, a host, but you ne- you you forget all about the host in those shows until you hear their voice again. Um, I thought that was kind of cool for a fictional thing. But then later on, I'm like, oh, it does break the immersion a bit. For example, in the studio, you hear my voice come in, Michael Kim's voice, and says, uh, uh, I forget what the question was, but it's something about, and do you feel lonely? Or some, something very obvious and too on the nose. And it just broke the whole rhythm of, of it broke the spell. And I thought, you know what? I, I'll be tempted to do that in the future, knowing me. So I'm just going to make it so that I won't do it. Right. I, I need to uh, create a mechanism where I won't do it. And the easiest mechanism is just to have the host as me. I want to shift gears a little bit and and start talking about some of the the themes that I see as recurring in the big loop. Mm-hmm. Um and and the first one is let's just get right into the heavy shit. Um there's a lot about violence in the big loop. Like several seasons, several stories in the first two seasons of the big loop focus on men who do violence for a living. And so I have a couple of questions about like violence and masculinities for you and I'd like to start with goodbye Mr. Adams. Mm-hmm. Um, now, you got to direct Brigham Snow, who plays Caleb in The Bright Sessions, and part of that character's arc in that show is this immediate reckoning with the violence that he's capable of, right? He he beats Damien half to death and then is immediately consumed with horror at having done violence. But now you get to direct that same actor in a story where violence seems to solve many of his problems, even if that solution is awfully sinister and he feels pleasure from doing the violence. Can, can you tell me about why you wanted to cast Brigan for the role? Because I, I understand that casting him informed what the written voice of that character was going to be. I, I don't know if I told the story publicly before, but I think The Bright Sessions was the first instance, the first episode with Caleb in it. I think it was episode three. I can't remember. But I remember exactly where I was, walking my dogs on this trail in North Vancouver, and I heard Caleb's voice. It, it felt like a gut punch because I, I'd always lamented the fact that I, I, I never heard an authentic teenage voice in things. All right? It was always a, a, an adult an adult voice sounding like a teenager, but I never heard an authentic yeah. teenager. And that was the first time I heard an authentic teen in, 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 a, in, a, in a fictional work, um, an audible fictional work. So uh, that was always in my head. So I thought, well, I, I love Brigham Snow's voice. I love the character and the world that he builds through that voice. And then when I, um, when I started writing this episode, uh, which came from me binging Punisher on Netflix, and, and that gross feeling I got afterwards when I, I found myself cheering on the violence. Like, these people deserve it, right? More, more. I wish, and I remember at one point thinking, I wish he beat that guy up worse. The glass in the face wasn't enough, mm-hmm. right? For that type of evil. And then I, then I got sickened because I was cheering on the violence. I'm like, well, I need someone who's empathetic for that role because I'm going to make them do really bad things. Right. And then I'm going to make the listener cheer them on. And by the end, with that happy, victorious, joyous song, uh, uh, make them really recoil at themselves, hopefully. That was that was the hope. Or maybe some people won't recoil. Sure, that's the, the love and radio trick, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Brigham was the only one I could think of that would facilitate my writing. Like if I had Caleb's voice in my head already, I, was, I wasn't thinking Brigham. I was thinking, let's put Caleb in a totally different situation, a completely different situation um, with different parents <laughs> and, and, uh, and a different background. And I just took Caleb's voice uh, and then it became something else by the time I'd been writing. When I asked Brigham, can I write it for you? He said, yeah. By then it became, it, it moved away from Caleb's voice and it became 
um, this, this this person Brady. Uh, but it was it was Caleb's voice in the Bright Sessions that helped me figure out how to write these sentences. So in a, you released a lesson plan for teaching Goodbye, Mr. Adams in class, uh, and you asked students to reflect on Brady and how they felt about his use of violence. Did you cheer him on? Were you repulsed by it? Or a mix of the two. Why can violence feel so satisfying? I think I, that one has been a question that's been plaguing me for a long time, which is why it's, it's such a theme in so many big loop stories, because it's it's, a, it's something I've grappled with. Yeah. The, the thing of of vengeance, of of, of retribution. Um, uh, I grew up around a lot of violence, like not not bad, bad, like like inner city type of violence, but just being the target of racism. It always it was always physical. Um, and my dad was very disapproving, uh, a very strong silent crane man. He was very disapproving of me coming home crying instead of coming home with a story of, oh, I, I beat that guy up for calling me a chink. Uh, he approved of that when I, when I gave him those stories. And so I grew, I grew up with this all of, a lot of anger. I was a grade four boy doing 100 push-ups a day. Uh, sorry, grade five. Just to train myself at that age on my own to beat up bullies. Um, and then when I got older and went into theology and, and you know, became religious, I was like, what the hell was I, like all these things came in. Uh, I was like, what the hell have I been doing my whole life? Um, uh, with the, with these thoughts in my head, I, my, my dad really did a number on me. I, I love my dad, but that's, you know, he just passed on what he uh, accidentally learned from his dad. Um, but, but I know some, a lot of my friends that that's, that's a cycle that's really hard to break. And I saw that in my students. Um, I, I taught in uh, Vancouver's, in, what we call the inner city, but a lot of troubled backgrounds, a lot, a lot of troubled young men. And their, their only solution to things was violence. Male rage is something that we see now, like in the incel movement. Like it's something that isn't coped with well or dealt with very well in schools. And um, we, I think to, to, to speak to these young men, we need a lot of people who are equipped to, 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 to show them and, 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 and unlayer for them and show them all the layers of this is where it comes from. Right? But it's, it's so hard to do. So uh, that, that was just the beginning. I was hoping that t- teachers would take that lesson and maybe bring in a counselor or somebody to just like anger management. I had to take anger management classes uh, when I was a young man. And, and that helped me see the layers in me and, where it, and the lines and the, and, the, and, the, and the choreography of emotions I go into every moment um, and how they work in me. Uh, but I never had that benefit as a young man. I never had that benefit as a student. Uh, I wish I did. My therapist told me that, like, the way that most men in, you know, the U.S. and Canada are socialized is that mm-hmm. anger is the only acceptable outlet for any kind of emotion. So any mm-hmm. anything that you feel is just automatically going to be channeled, like, that the only culturally appropriate way to express yourself. So if you're full of grief, it comes out as anger. If you're full of, you know, embarrassment, it, it expresses itself as anger. Mm-hmm. Um and sometimes that anger expresses itself through through violence. I I feel like Goodbye Mr. Adams, there's there it feels like the big loop establishes this spectrum of violent behavior from like honorable justified violence on one end in The Promise and dishonorable unjustified violence on the other end in Wide Awake. Uh, Wide Awake is interesting because it's sort of it seems at first like it's also justified. Uh, but, but then in the middle, there's kind of this like completely different tone of the wacky but ultimately honorable contract killer in FML and Smoke, and then mm-hmm. Goodbye Mr. Adams's uh, vigilante justice. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. You've already you've already said like what what 
I had a question here, which was like, what do you want to say about like how men interact with the world by using force? But I feel like you've you've already you've already mentioned. Yeah, it's it's just I, I just want to present like it's just these are issues that I see in the people that I grew up with, and and then the young men that I've taught. Um, and it's something that's not dealt with and it's, and it's very complicated. And if we don't deal with it, um, it'll come back to bite us in the ass. It, it is a thing that yeah. fuels, it, it's, it's such a, th- it's such a powerful force that fuels so many things in our society that we don't grapple with. So yeah, a guy is not going around beating people up in their face. So instead he's channeled that into becoming a billionaire right? <laughs> to, to, to protect his own family and, and just Mm-hmm. beat up economically other people. I don't know if, that, if that's how it works, but you know what I mean? I'm, I'm sure it, it, it manifests in other ways uh, if not dealt with properly. And um, yeah, it's just, and, and, and I see so much of, um, um, like like uh, the promise. Uh, that was an example of, that was, uh, that was, it started off as his father, but then I made it an adoptive father who's a gang boss. And yeah. I, I've seen so many of, being a Korean man, I'm sure it happens with a lot of other cultures too, but um a lot of us idolize our very faulty fathers, like idolize. That's how we grew up with them. And we don't, we don't ever vocalize their faults. Like we quietly recognize them later on in age. Like, yeah, my dad was, but then we, we stop ourselves at that moment. Like my dad was, and we stop. Like we don't admit how faulty they were. Uh, Cause it's, mm. it's like bringing dishonor to your father. And it's like, it's like betraying him just by voicing it. Sure. Um, there's been times when my brother and I were, we, we know we, uh, uh, at one moment we found ourselves both uh, divorced, young divorced men and we looked at each other we were on the verge of talking about our dad and then we just sort of like shrugged it off like ah come on let's not, let's not do that we're like yeah you're right you're right <laughs> you know that kind of thing and just crack sure. open a beer and you know whatever it's, it's just it's just yeah it, it's, it's, I, it's I could see how so easily it becomes incredibly toxic because it just festers and molds and it just uh I don't know the how. I don't know the how to deal with it. I just know it's a conversation to be had. And, and I think um, I've had some people talk to me about Goodbye, Mr. Adams, some friends, not, not friends, but buddies. And they're, I'm like, what'd you think? They go, oh, I loved it. The way he just fucking beat up everybody. Good for him. Oh, no. But, and, and no, nothing. No irony, no layers, nothing. Yeah. And the room would go quiet and no one wants to say anything. I'm like, oh, that's, that's, that's you enjoyed it? Like, he goes, yeah, I was fucking more of that, man. And I'm like, oh, man. I'm reminded of a, when, when that happened at that party, when that guy said that, uh, my buddy, um, I, first thing I thought of was Dave Chappelle's story about how he's making jokes and then right. he could hear the wrong type of laughter. Like people were laughing at the, like they were laughing at his black characters, not with the, 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 the poor conditions that he grew up with. And he's like, I need to, I need to step back. <laughs> I'm not seeing the nuance here. I'm not delivering it. Something's off. Um, so I, I, I grappled with that. I remember Goodbye Mr. Adams, Steve and I, one of the only arguments that we ever had, not really an argument, but Steve really put his foot down on the last song, the outro song for um, uh, Goodbye, Mr. Adams by Elsa. He said, no, 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 I, I, I can't put that in there. I'm like, why not? He goes, it's so joyous. Like, it's just, it's just Brady going on the road towards his, 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 his boyfriend. It's, it's just, you're, you're, you're giving assent to that. I'm like, no, I'm not. I want people to, it's irony. And he's like, no, I'm, I'm putting, I'm, I refuse to do it. I, I can't do it. And so it was like a prolonged me convincing him People will not take it that way, but I did have to question that mm-hmm. Steve saw it like that way too, right? It's 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 trusting your audience to get the tone, yeah, which is a tricky thing to do. I mean, you can't you can't get a hundred percent of everybody, right? But I, I think that the the ambiguity, the uncomfortable ambiguity, is certainly present and and visible. Okay, I, I hope so. I, I hope it for more. I, if I get, I don't even know the number, but if I get eighty percent of people seeing that, I'll be happy. 
onto our next heavy topic, and I promise I'm going to come up from from the valley in a minute. Um, but but faith is the next element of is the next like thematic element that I've I've seen as like a through line uh, in in the big loop. Um, you you've said this in many interviews, but you lost your faith in the mid '90s, and this mural mirrors Charles' loss of faith in all God's children. Um, but God and people's interactions with faith suffuse the big loop. Um, if you're comfortable saying so, what is, what is your relationship to faith currently? Currently, it's it's I'm still an atheist, uh, but I'm not the angry atheist I used to be after my fall away from because I used to be an evangelical youth pastor. Like I converted hard to Christianity mm-hmm. when I was 18. Um, like I was headed for law school, and I said, you know what, Oops, you know, quick right turn. I, when I became a Christian, uh, left my fraternity, <laughs> uh, left sort of the party life. Um, like I, I went I went deep. I uh, went to missionary conferences, so I went a whole hog. You don't strike me as a man that does anything by degrees. <laughs> I know. Everyone called me extreme. Right? Like, didn't, didn't you force yourself to become a morning person, right? Yeah. <laughs> oh, wow. You did a lot of research, David. That's awesome. Oh, yeah. Oh, oh, yes, we do. Um, it, it was, yeah, it was, it was, it was, uh, I, I went, I went full on. Uh, I, I, I remember in the first two years of my faith when I was 18, when I became, Came a Christian. I don't know if you ever talked to a Christian about this. I'm like, oh my god, I just converted to Christianity, but I haven't read the Bible. That is so fucking weird. Like I just converted to the faith of a book which I haven't read. And but that's a majority of Christians out there. They haven't read it. I found out uh, during my faith. Interesting. Uh, walk with faith. So so I, I I consume the Bible when I first converted. I read it five times, back to back. I read it like a novel five times in a row over two years. I've taken tons of notes and. Then I thought, well, I got way too many questions now <laughs> with these verses. I went to Regent College to study. Anyways, um, uh, when my faith fell away, my my very Christian wife uh, kicked me out of the house. Uh, it's not like our marriage was going well anyways, uh, but the atheism was the last thing to drop. Then I became a very, uh, my friends called me Bitter Bay uh-huh. uh, because I became so bitter towards every Christian oh, friend man. I had. Every time they tried to evangelize me back to the faith. And it was so unfair of me to do that in hindsight. Uh, All God's Children was sort of my attempt to make not peace because all my friends are still my friends, but but to sort of say sorry. I get why faith is important in hindsight. Like I get why you would cling to your faith even though you can't answer these questions because I would pepper them with theological questions. And of course they don't have answers to it because the Bible's full of these of these inconsistencies. And right. But I, I came to a point where like, wow, that faith is pretty important because me living without faith is pretty empty. <laughs> like I, I have very scant few reasons to feel joy. Uh, I feel joy. But then I get down when I think about how, how I'm going to disappear and everything I love disappear. So these stories all come from, from that impulse to, to infuse my life with meaning. Yeah, they're all such personal stories. You know, I mean, I, I say that not to like dis- diminish like the character work that you're doing. But there's so much, from what I see, there's so much you in all of these stories. The loss of faith, the long stretches of lonesomeness. So so you are consciously drawing on your experiences as you write, for the most part? Or do you look back later in some cases and say, like, oh, that's some of me in there, and I didn't mean for that to show up? Oh, no, no, no. It's, it's purposely, it's consciously on uh, from parts of my life and, and th- things I've struggled with or things I've dealt with. Um, and the, that's the great part of doing this with Steve. And that's the reason I asked Steve instead of hiring, because I do, I, did, I do pay Steve. I, instead of paying another audio designer that has experience with it, I wanted someone who's been on the journey with me. And that's, that's nobody. Right. <laughs> Steve's been there when I became a Christian. 
Steve was there when I got married, when I divorced, when I... Steve was the only guy there when I became an atheist and he was the only one willing to keep bringing me out for coffee even though I was a very difficult person to be with and unpleasant person to be with during those two or three years when I didn't want to see anybody. Steve was the one who kept coming to my apartment and saying, hey, let's, let's go out for coffee. And so when he saw these stories, he'd read the first drafts and he'd always email me back, I know exactly where this uh-huh. is coming from. And he would tell me, he goes, I remember this moment where the, I go, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he, and he, he, he sees so much of it that I don't, I don't even have to explain the sound design sometimes. Like he, he gets what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Like in the eye of the Lord, oh, that final scene where her, she explains her father going angrily up, driving this rocket ship called the needle into the eye of right. God. Steve knew exactly what I was trying to say. And I didn't, he, he came up with that whole design. And that it's the only moment in my life where, sorry, in my audio life, where I, th- I wrote down something. And then the, the other person did it exactly the way I heard it in my head. <laughs> right? And I remember emailing him. I'm like, thank you for doing that. Like, thank you for reaching into my heart and my brain and bringing that out exactly the way I thought. And he goes, yeah, I know where you got this from because I remember we were talking one night and you said you wanted to punch God in the face <laughs> if he was God. You said you wanted to, I wish God existed so I could fucking punch him in the eye and, and I'm like, for all of us and, then, uh, uh, and for leaving us alone. And making us deal with it on our own. Right. And Steve just gets all that. Right? So, yeah. That's, all of this is very personal. And, um, and, and, it's, and it only, it's only because it helps to have Steve there yeah. uh, without me explaining everything, like where these stories come no, from. What an incredible privilege to be able to work with someone who so intimately understands your history. That's really cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you've described all God's children as a combination of Cthulhu and the book of Job. And it has a a hopeful ending, Mm -hmm. at least how I read it. Like, Charles takes Michael Mm -hmm. and Thomas to the seaside, and he and Michael watch as Thomas swims out. And Charles seems to have maybe Mm -hmm. regained his faith in the process of, like, allowing his son to blossom into this sharp-toothed, tentacled creature. And I, I found that kind of wondrous and horrific at the same time. Um, what were you thinking about as you put that story together? I was trying to, I was trying to show that because a lot of my Christian friends, um, you know, you start evangelical Christian and every word of the Bible is true. And then you start going through the Bible and like, well, I don't believe this part. I don't believe this part. And you actually end up, you, en- you actually end up creating your own mini Christianity, like a version of Christianity. That's not like anyone else's Christianity. Like you're creating, you're basically creating your own meaning. Right. And so what I was trying to say with, with Tomas was that, um, like uh, Ch- Charles is creating his own meaning throughout all of this, right? What, what, it start, what started with uh, a very fundamentalist thing, we cannot abort this baby, right? That's very fundamentalist Christian. But then he and his wife leaves him later on because she can't deal with the reality of it. And she's created her own meaning. Like she stays Christian, but she's created her own version of Christianity. That's not what it was when they started. Sure. And he's created his own as like, you know, I, I, this is my meaning. I don't know how it fits. It's not as biblical, but it's, it's very meaningful to him. And I, I was trying to put at the end, I was trying to say Charles wouldn't mind so much. It would kill him. But in hindsight, it, he might be relieved if, if Thomas never returned. Hmm. Right? And, and I, I found that sad. Uh, and uh, this is the episode where I've gotten so many letters from parents who, who either lost kids at childbirth or had, had kids with difficult upbringings um that i didn't expect and they had so much and they said thank you for addressing this thing and some of them even said things like you know i've always felt guilt about the things in the back of my head that occur 
during the toughest times of raising this kid. And they sense that in what I'm, that's what I was trying to say in this story that, yeah, I don't blame, you, you can't, no one can blame you for thinking these things that I hope, I love him, but I hope he never comes back. <laughs> right? Yeah. Uh, and then if to do that, you have to create your own meaning. Because in, in sure. a biblical world, that'd be, that'd, be, that'd be horrendous. You're going to hell for that. But everyone sort of, the former atheist in me would have pissed on that, right? Like any, any kind of religion that allows Like I'm like, well, then why even believe in religion? But now the more mature me, <laughs> the more accepting me is like, yeah, you, we all do what we can. We have to face the reality of, of all choices we make in our lives and, and, and how we exactly feel things like loss. Yeah, and, and Charlie's one of my best friends. We were sketch partners together. Uh, I got a beautiful, I got a beautiful message from a, a well-known audio dramatist. Uh, I'm not going to say his name because he might not want it public. But he said, Who, "How did you write that dialogue?" And I said, "Why?" He goes, "It's it's it's so realistic." And I had to explain, "Oh, that's my that's my sketch partner. We used to write for each other's voice all the time, so it's second nature to us. Like he can write for my voice, I can write for his." Oh, so you you wrote the like the code switching into Quebecois? No, I let him do that, but I knew he was going to do that. I, I I put a little asterisk. Hey, that thing you do in our sketches, like can you can you do that right here, here, here? And he goes, yeah, yeah, yeah no problem, no problem. So you you said in an in interview with Arthur McCabe that, and you referenced this earlier in the interview. You're chasing this one big question with the big loop: Does my existence matter? And uh, to what to what extent has that question changed for you as your relationship with faith changed? Um, the question hasn't changed. The answer doesn't come, but my experience with it has changed. Okay. In terms of like, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to fight it. Uh, I just need to find ways like it's meaningful to me. And that's really all that matters. Um, but I, I'm, I'm a, at the same time, uncomfortable with that because I've heard Woody Allen say that in a lot of his movies and I don't want to think like, I, I want a, I want a more definite morale. Like I want lines in my life. Yeah. I want lines I won't cross. Um, but I think that's just your, your inner morale. Like what, what do you, what do you get? What else? What's the alternative? Sure. And you definitely um, don't want like moral lines as drawn by Woody Allen. Exactly. Right. So I, I, I don't, I, yeah, my experience of it is I, I'm able to just look at things and, and let go. Right. And I think a lot of it has to do with seeing not being so judgy of other people. Mm. I, I, I used to be such a judgmental person and I fight it all the time. Um, and I think, you know, because I when I became, when I was a Christian, I judged non-Christian people. When I became an atheist, I judged Christian people. And now I'm at the point where I was like, stop fucking judging people. <laughs> just, just enjoy this ride. Enjoy the blessings. Enjoy everything that's come my way. Uh, enjoy the work. Enjoy the, the incredible amount of luck I've been getting lately. Those situations that I thought were hard before, the, the things that I thought were going to break me, the fact that it led me to moments of great pause and reflection to be able to look into myself and, and, and then pull these stories out. I didn't know those things were going to be related to, like when I was going through the divorce, I didn't know I'd end up writing about meaninglessness and, and, and my search for God and feeling abandoned. I didn't know that that helped make my career later on. Like I was writing back then, but I was writing little spy stories. Like I wasn't writing about this. <laughs> Sure. Uh, so I want to I want to move into the third theme that I've pulled out of of the big loop, which is which is love, because there's so much that you say in each of these stories about love and loss and and the human experience. Uh, but I'd like to go into a few of them and talk about different kinds of love that you present in in the show. Mm -hmm. um, there's there's so much going on in surfacing 
Um, but the protagonist mm. talks about this mythical, extraordinarily powerful love with Hane, her fellow diver. How a love like that is never meant to last forever, only for a moment. What did you mean by that? Ooh, okay, so this comes from um, why the, the beginning of the big loop. Uh, the beginning of all of this is uh, I'm, I'm with my uh, uh, my common-law wife now. We've been together, I think, 11, 12 years. Um, and before that, uh, it was just uh, my my brief marriage, which led to my divorce, and then just a whole bunch of three-week-long relationships, like just dating. I never had another relationship after the, the wedding, uh, after the divorce. Uh, and then 10 years later, along comes my, my to-be partner. And I remember sitting next to her downtown Vancouver in our condo with the one dog at the time, Monty. And, you know, we're watching a movie and I remember looking out the window. I have my computer open because I'm writing notes as the movie's going on because I was trying to study it. And I remember thinking, I am so happy right now. And this absolutely fucking sucks that this all means nothing. That we're all going to die and that this will mean nothing. Like, oh, man. This, all go, this all disappears. I remember feeling that. And I have, I have those anxiety attacks quite often. And, and, and she has to sort of rub my back and sort of calm me down. Yeah. It's, it's not that dramatic, but it's, it's just once in a while. Um, uh, but it, I remember thinking, sure. there's got to be more to this. But then I realized, I, I don't know. I don't know. If the, I'll never know if there's more to this. And it sucks that I, there's no solution. There's no, no one's going to come up with an answer. Uh, it's, just, it's just a leap of faith at this point. And I just choose, but I know I'm choosing to see things a certain way. So yeah, that's what led to this. And I thought, you know what? This is, this is, this is momentary. This is just, a, a, it's just, it's a flash, but you know what? I'm going to experience it. I'm going to, I'm going to soak it in because that's all I could do. Um, she catches me quite a bit. Like we, uh, this whole thing, every day I try to like soak in as much as there's been so much going on this year that um, my biggest fear is that this will, you know, two years later, I'll be like, whoa, what happened the last two years? I don't like that feeling. I like, I like years feeling right. long because um, life is so short and I want to extend it as much. As, I want to extend the experience of it yeah. as much as possible. So that's what I was trying to say in surfacing. Um, and that's what you was about with, with Lauren Shippen and Julia Morozawa. Uh, that whole thing about is all, your love and then mm -hmm. it all disappears. What the fuck? <laughs> it's, it's like, um, so surfacing, I was trying to make a, a, a more hopeful version of that, of, of you. Same story, but a different, uh, right. I put it in a fable because fables are usually happy. Um, <laughs> underwater, because you know you don't usually see it unless you dive really deep. It's so, it's so on the nose. But <laughs> then uh, it's, uh, I wanted something like that. I wanted something that it's, it's more easy to take apart and, 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 and be it, have it be a lesson. Yeah, all these experiences we experience, they're short. And, and, and the positive ways of looking at that, because um, I have friends whose loved ones have passed away, and it's like, you know, just, you know, maybe, maybe it's just so, too, maybe it's too much to be extended. All right. That's, that's the only positive way I could, I could frame that. Like people were so beautiful that they couldn't be here too long. That kind of thing. So, uh, yeah. I, luckily, I've never experienced someone super close to me passing away. But w when that happens, I'm, I'm going to have to draw upon this. <laughs> Sorry. I had to superstitiously spit. <laughs> Kenahora, the, the, the Jews say. It's, uh keeps the evil eye away. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Can, can, you tell me, can you tell me about the... So we've gone through the genesis of the story from a thematic standpoint, but how did you decide to make surfacing the story of like a deaf lesbian oyster diver from Japan? And how did you decide to have it mediated through her hearing speaking daughter? I was listening to an episode, uh, geez, what was it? It's one of those podcasts about sound design. Uh, it's, it's very popular. Um, 
20,000 hertz? Not that one. It's the one where they, do, they, they have that uh, huge um, how sound. It was how sound. Okay. And they had an episode where they're, they're interviewing uh, a, a person who did a, did a, a documentary episode on a, a, a female uh, diver, fr uh, fr a free diver. And they're talking about the sound environment that they use to create that experience of breathing in and out and being underwater and having silence. And when I heard that, I'm like, oh my God, that's, that's the world. I want an audio drama, an audio experience about silence. Um, it didn't become too silent, Audacious. right? But it's, 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 I think I thought it was perfect as a, as a metaphor for these things that we fill that silence. In. Just because there's silence doesn't mean nothing's happening. Uh, and I, I wanted to, I want to sort of convey that. Uh, and, and then yeah. I just fit that at the same time, I happened to be reading about, uh, the Japanese pearl industry and the, the divers and what had happened to them. Like they used to, they used to dive into like frigid, it was always women, frigid, frigid, uh, ocean temperatures naked. But then Western tourism started, so they started putting loincloths on them and making them dress up, and it became a costume Disneyland type of thing for some of these uh, oyster gardens. And I want to talk about how, how you know, beautiful native, well, native to where you are, uh, things become colonized and westernized and changed, and 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 you don't. Yeah. It's hard to see the beauty anymore. Um, and that fits, of course, well in with you know what what you know the whole metaphor of deep, what's hidden underneath, and that kind of thing. Um, yeah. And of course I made it a ghost story because that's my thing. So, <laughs> right. Yeah. I just, I just added that part in, but I, 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 um, the mermaid seemed obvious. Uh, but it was, it was a way to talk about, um, familial distance. Like I, I have, I keep learning more about my parents. The older I get, I'm like, how come I never bothered to ask these questions? How come I don't know these things? Like, I don't know. I right. don't know who my mother's first love was. If it was my dad, I don't know any of these things. So I wanted that character to experience that as she was telling it for her mother. Um, I, sure. thought, I thought that was a really cool device. Uh, uh, it was. It was very powerful. So, so going back to the, I mean, this is this is consonant. I love them both. It, there are stories of love so powerful in the Big Loop that it consumes you, or it literally consumes part of you. I, I'm thinking of the promise. Like Jung Min cares so much for that marvelous dumb-looking dog that he sacrifices a part of himself to save it. And here's how I knew that, uh, that 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 dude would, like, do absolutely anything to protect that dog. The dog is named Nongshim, and you don't name a dog Noodles and expect me not to <laughs> yes. be willing to die for it, you know? <laughs> Thank you for getting... You're the only person that got that. Really? Because everyone's like, why'd you name a Nongshim? Because some Koreans got it. Like, they go like, is it named after the Noodles? And I'm like, yeah, the, 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 it's named after the, the noodles we all eat. Yeah. Like, I, that's exactly what, like, a hard-boiled crime boss would name this, like, dumb, kind of ugly-looking dog that he's secretly very sweet on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I, yeah, no, I, I was in it from the moment I learned that dog's name. Um, can you tell me a little bit about the Korean and English parallel production of that episode? Like, what, what influenced the the feel of the tape for the Korean dialogue that you and Steve got with that, with that episode. So we got really lucky because uh, the actor is Jimmy Yi. Uh, I acted with him in uh, Seth Rogen's movie, The Interview, and we got to mm -hmm. be friends through that. And so I called him up and said, hey, you, your Korean was pretty good in the movie. Do you actually speak Korean? And he goes, it's not that good, but it's, it's better than yours. I'm like, okay, then come on, let's do, <laughs> let's, let's, let's do this. And he, I go, can you translate, but I need you to translate these English parts into Korean the way you would in your, in your Southern Korean accent. And so he got ready. Uh, I gave him lead time and he came over 
And he said the only way he could do it was by, uh, uh, he had a friend um, on the East Coast. I think it's Maryland. I'm not sure exactly where it is. And he asked him, hey, can you say it in Korean, these lines, and, and record it and send it to me? And so he, he, when he came to my studio, he was, he was listening to it and then he delivered it. And then we're like, hey, wouldn't it be just easier just to upload that voice into the episode? Sure. Because it had that wonderful grainy quality to yeah. it from the phone. And, and he had the perfect accent. And then we called him up and said, hey, do you mind being used? And he loved it. And he goes, can you just shout out my channel that I have with my son? They just play games together on YouTube and his son loves it. I'm like, oh, That's of course. Really <laughs> so so we, I drove some traffic that way. But it was, it was, we just lucked out for that part. Um, but I wanted, I wanted to write something that was um, uh, more akin to those documentaries you hear, those wonderful... Did you ever hear that one? Uh, I think it was this, this American Life about the phone booth in Japan. So in Japan, um, so, something wiped, I forget what the event was. I think, I think I'm pretty sure it was um, a tsunami wiped out a lot of people in the local population. Okay. And, and a local artist put up a phone booth, like one of those old style glass phone booths in his garden. And it became this thing where people would just drop by. It's not attached. You don't see any wires going into it. And they lift it up and they would talk to their relatives who they lost. Huh. And it wasn't a spiritual thing. It wasn't, they didn't think that it was a ghost or anything, but they would just... They just did it as a, as a type of therapy. And there was a sign outside saying, hey, we're gonna, there's a microphone in here, so just know that you're being taped. Uh, and it was so fucking heart-wrenching hearing their Japanese uh, intimate talking and then you hear the English translation over it yeah. coming in just a few seconds after it. I, I love that sound of that. And I never heard that in an audio drama before, like the, that kind of uh, documentary type translation. That's what I want to do with this, ep- with this, with this episode. To get uh, to tell a Korean, a very Korean gangster, because I love Korean gangster movies. So I want I want to tell my version of a Korean gangster story in a big loop style, but with that texture of of, of that bilingual documentary texture. But uh, and I've always wanted to tell a story of it because it's it's always like it's always my hope with a big loop. Because uh, I remember Larish and I were talking about she was like, how are you going to make money off this? Because you don't want too much advertising on it. And on season two, I didn't want any advertising. I just wanted to go full Patreon. Um, it just it just. I didn't like the breaks, the commercial breaks in these particular stories because they were so personal. Um, that's the bad thing about making personal stories because you, <laughs> you don't want it interrupted uh, so you don't make money off of it. But my, my hope was always, um, I hope I get to license these out. I hope people reach out to me and say, can we turn these into movies or whatever? Like th- you take this story, you take this story. And that's how I'll, I'll make my money back eventually. Um, right? And uh, I, guess I, could say, I guess I could keep it vague. Uh, I've had a lot of people reach out. So hopefully I, I reach that goal. <laughs> yeah, uh, I can't say which ones, but yeah, it's it's. Uh, but I've always wanted I've always wanted to be the Korean guy in Canada that makes a Korean gangster film. Um, it'd be pretty cool. That would be dope as hell. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so to pull us out of our sadness valley, real quick, <laughs> this question comes to us from Eli McElveen, our senior interviews producer mm-hmm. and another Canadian audio dramatist with wonderful dogs. And Eli wants to know dogs, you know. So dogs though, how great are they? Dogs are awesome. My dogs are incredible. Um, and my wife's to be take all the credit because I didn't want the first dog. She convinced me. Uh, I didn't, want, didn't want the want second Monty? dog, but she came with me to Whistler. Yeah, <laughs> uh, Monty's the first one. Billy's the second one. We saw him up at Whistler. Um, uh, I, I don't know if you heard down in the States, but uh, during the Vancouver Winter Olympics, um, it, it was tough financially on some people. Oh, and so man. this sled dog operation, they had to cull all the sled dogs. It was awful. It was just awful. Oh. Uh, the guy that had to do it had to go into therapy. Like he just had a meltdown, of, understandably. Um, 
but they had all these puppies up for adoption. So my wife uh, somehow got herself onto my stand-up comedy tour uh, there, and she visited without my knowledge. And we found... Amazing. All, luckily, all those sled dog puppies were accounted for. Like, everyone adopted them. And then what was left over was Billy. So we got the leftover dog, and then he turned out to be awesome. Yeah. And then Ella was like a... Um, uh, the local, a local humane society sh- a shelter um, put out a call saying someone just left her at the vet when they saw the price tag of what she needed for her health care. Like she was in really bad shape. And we thought, you know, we've been really lucky. We should probably get her. Um, and it's hard to say no when you see her picture. <laughs> so, yeah. That reminds me of um, Eli's husband, Sean, found this dog, like maybe like a couple months ago. He was moving his mom from, uh, I think, Oklahoma to Florida. And while they were mm-hmm. in, I think maybe Mississippi, Sean found this dog on, on the highway median, just this starving dog. Oh. And he picked it up and put it in the cab of the truck. And he and his mom drove it to Florida. And then he took the dog back to Ontario. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> sometimes you just know. I don't know. Jillian and I adopted a dog about four months ago. Her name oh, is Fanny. I know. And, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, you've seen her. Yeah. She's super cute, and I'm trying to teach her how to sit on the couch. Because right now she only sits on the back cushions of the couch, and it pushes yeah, yeah, yeah. the the bottom cushions out. Yeah. Uh, What's interesting is that um, uh, that that episode, the promise. Um, it, it's called the promise because I made a promise to my. Do- this is so so stupid. I made no, a no, promise no. to Ella, Ella, that I would write an episode about her, about my love for her. That's that what is it's the really cutest about. thing. No one's asked me that. Why is it called The Promise? Because it looks like it, there's an actual promise in the episode. But it's about my promise to write an episode about my love for dogs. Amazing. That's how that, that's how that whole thing came out. And I kept, and I kept it. I'm like, uh, my wife knows, like, I would go nuts. Like, uh, I would go nuts if I ever lost one of my dogs in the woods. Because we go in the woods all the time. Um, I, I, a couple times I thought I lost them. And I just went insane looking for them. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> um, my final love question is is that the the additional kind of love that you focus on in the big loop are, are are these stories of love that haunt you, like in the studio and you. And the studio to me is kind of like if Rear Window were a ghost sport story about like two people who needed to exercise their past relationships by grieving them. Would you agree with that characterization? Uh yeah, it, it, was, it was more it was less about grieving for me. It, of course it's about grieving, but it was more about um uh it was more about self-love. And, and self-love is not just, it's not just loving yourself. That's, that's the question that started it. It's not just about loving yourself. It's about contextualizing your love for other people and how they loved you. Um, so she is so blind. She becomes so blind to her ex's love for her that she doesn't even see it in front of her. Like that's the ghost. That's the ghost metaphor right in front of her. All she sees is love of other people, intimacy of other people. But she's so removed from herself and her ability to um, just fully contextualize. Like, this is who I am. And this is how people have loved me. This is how I would like to love. This is, So it was more about that. It was that. But of course, about for her case, it's about grieving. She didn't grieve properly. So was unable to contextualize uh, her grief. Sure. What can love do when it's unchecked? You get lonely. Um, that's what I use the window metaphors, like the aquarium, uh, um, uh, the, the feeling of being in an aquarium, of watching other people, she's being... But it's, it was all about perspective, uh, the studio. It's all about... I, I think a lot of people would be happy... Well, maybe not initially, but if, when you put the brakes on your life and look at who has loved me, who have I loved, 
it becomes a very depressing thing when you when you ask yourself that, or it becomes a very a thing where you're like, "Wow, I was really lucky," but I, have I reciprocated? Have I loved properly back? Yeah. And when you think about all the people you hurt, and it, it, it piles up. But I think if you go through that process, you allow yourself to go through that process. It becomes a very healthy thing. I, I find that people who have gone through that um, become very attractive people. Like they become very. There's something about them. Like they know they know their worth. Hmm. Uh, they, they 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 they're they're buoyant. There's you know, it's, um, I have friends that, you know, some, some, sometimes they're like, you know, why them? How are they able to find love? Not me. Everything else being equal. How come? Them. And, you know, I, and I don't want to say, you know, you haven't coped with what you have and what you don't have. Like you haven't, you haven't assessed your value, right? Because then if you don't know the, your own value, uh, it becomes a self-esteem issue. And so Tara in the studio, she was so good at, you could hear the insecurity in her voice, but her words are very secure, are very self-knowing. Um, that was the trick. Tara was so good at like yeah. every word Laura says in that in the studio, like it's very self-knowing. Uh, it's very smart. But her voice, you could hear the insecurity in her voice. Just <laughs> well, peep, just I mean, the character is based on every her. Every sentence right? she says, that, I love that about Tara. She understood that character right away. The, uh, the 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 way she told a story, I was like, well, she, I bet you she can nail this. If I write it for her, she's gonna nail this, <laughs> and, and she did. Um, but when she read it, she was like, uh, she had to, she had to cope with the fact that, yeah, uh, uh, like, it must be, it must have been weird for her. I never talked about this, like to read this thing. And when you read it, you're like, okay, this guy, Paul, uh, right. saw that I use words to mask what's really going on. But, but we all do that, right? So, um, but uh, yeah, I think I, um, anyways, yeah, that's, that's what the story was trying to get at. I think that's the, that's the context. Hey, Paul. What does the title of the show mean? What's the big loop? Um, so the big the big loop is just a, a, a cycle of not reincarnation, but it's it's all these experiences that sort of cycle around and around. And there, there's it's nothing mm. really original, but it feels original. That's why the big loop insignia, the symbol that I have, the infinity symbol, doesn't really connect. Um, it looks like it connects from far away, but if you look closely at it, it, it breaks apart. There's a there's a beginning and an end to it, um, because. The universe might go sure. on, but I don't. Like, I, I definitely end. So what, is, what do these stories mean in that context? Like, what does my life mean in that? What do my stories mean in that context? That everything else goes on, and I'm here just for a blip. Like, I'm, my experience is dust in this vast universe. So wh what does that mean? What do these stories mean to me and to people next to me? Are they entertaining still? Are they meaningful? To what extent? Um, that's the big loop. Uh, knowing how we fit into this universe and what are what we mean in that in that context? That's awesome. Thank you. <laughs> in in one of your appearances on Spirits with Julia Shafini and Amanda McLaughlin, you reference some of the stories that you used to tell your students in East Vancouver, and how later a student of yours tried to explain in a Facebook group full of alumni that you had made the stories up. But that's a Mr. Bay original. But she couldn't convince her younger classmates. They thought the things that you had invented extemporaneously during class were established stories dating back to like the 1950s. How did it, <laughs> how did it feel to craft history like that? It was really it was pretty cool. It was a uh, um, at first it was unsettling because I didn't want people going into that school thinking it's really haunted. Uh, but then I thought, hey, who cares? <laughs> it's, like, it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a fun story to tell. But um, it did scare me though. It did. It did frighten me a bit in terms of how how these things can become real. Right? It's 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 uh, 
it depends what rumors are started. Uh, it could either be fun or yeah. scare or, or frightening and depressing. So, like Julia, that former student, she I saw her in there. Julia Lockley just just saying, telling everyone, "Hey guys, I was there when he made it up," <laughs> but they, everyone just chimed, refused to believe. Everyone's calling her fake news. You know, they didn't use the term fake news, but that's that's how I look at it now, right? <laughs> People are providing you know eyewitness testimony. Yeah. They, no, 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 this is not true. But no one believes them, and there's nothing you can say about it. The story has taken on a life of its own. But as a storyteller, <laughs> I love it. Because stories are incredibly powerful, uh, and people are will cling to a good narrative. It reminds me, um, one of my friends, Steve, was a uh, history teacher. He used to teach AP Euro, and he made a joke one time about Manfred von Richthofen, right, the the Red Baron. Uh, rather than saying, I think he died mm. in in combat, um, but I, I, you know, I think he made the gag like, oh no, after the war he retired to sell pizza, right. And then he saw, mm. and then Steve saw that answer, that joke answer, eight months later on a on a student's exam. And he thought, "Oh my God, what have I done?" You know. Oh wow. <laughs> so I think, like, yeah, you have to be That's careful great. with the stuff that you tell kids. Um. Yeah, yeah. Like we we still get oh, we still man. get uh, emails all the time about you know um, how do we reach Doctor Strand? We got a case for him to solve. Um, and I'm pretty sure these people are serious. We have, we have people inviting Alex Reagan and Dr. Strand. They want to invite them to conferences. Um, it's, it's, and, and, and I, I, you know, I could stop it. We've said on the thing, like we've, we've thanked the actors. I don't know what else we could do. <laughs> That's really funny. Um, this question comes from Will, uh, who wanted me to ask you about the overlap that they're seeing between horror and comedy. In a live recording of Spirits during PodCon this January, you told these hilarious nightmare stories. But there's also something happening with these horror films that have comic elements in them, like Jordan Peele's films or Midsummer. Not only do I want to give Will credit for this question because I respect them, but also because I haven't seen any of these movies. I'm just trying to channel Will. Like, I've heard Will talk about it, I've heard mm. my wife talk about it. Specifically, there was this one moment in the film Us that they identified as very Paul Bay, and I wanted to get your reaction to it. First, have you seen okay. the film? Yes. Okay, great. Okay, so for so for the benefit of everyone else, uh, spoilers for Us. Um, minor characters who are played by Tim Heidecker and Elizabeth Moss are facing off with their murderous doppelgangers. And Moss's character is trying to reach for a weapon. She can't get it. But she sees that her smart speaker device is within reach. It's called Ophelia in the movie. She calls out, Ophelia, call the police. And the device says, got it, playing, fuck the police. And that song plays over their murder. <laughs> that was great. What is it? What does it say to you that a certain strain of horror content has become purposefully funny? Um, well, first of all, mm -hmm. Will said that was a very Paul Bay moment. I'm very flattered that she said that. Because <laughs> um, I wish I came up with that. Um, that'd, that'd be brilliant. Uh, but uh, it makes total sense. Like Jordan Peele's a um, former comedian uh, writing horror. I'm a former comedian. First four into audio dramas, horror. I know a lot of I know a lot of comedians who would make excellent because excellent uh, horror writers. Because to me. Um, Scary moments in stories are a lot like punchlines. That's really interesting. I'd never thought of it like that. Like they're scary and they're funny because they're so unexpected, but they make sense leading up to it. It's all in the setup and then the delivery of that punchline or horrible moment. It's like telling a good joke. The tone is different, but the structure is the same. Right? So it's, it doesn't surprise me at all when Jordan, when I first heard Jordan Peele was doing all these horror things and I'm like, yeah, that makes total sense to me. 
Um, it wouldn't surprise me if you if you went back more into pe- people who delve in horror or like horror, or write about horror. If a lot of them dabbled in comedy first, like even uh, even uh, Maynard uh, uh, from Tool, he, he was an improv comedian, like an absurdist comedian before he was a singer, right? And and it, and it makes total sense if you look at his live shows like with his back to the audience it's all comedic <laughs> in a sense and, and i look at the midsummer i haven't seen those but i saw his first uh what was the other one um hereditary i have this reaction when i see really scary moments i laugh my ass off because i i want to applaud him like good job like it's, it's to me it's like a punchline. It, uh, my friends always it annoys them because when i see something scary I, I laugh my ass off and i go brilliant <laughs> bravo <laughs> i mean apparently midsummer <laughs> is supposed to be legitimately funny like, my wife came back after having seen it with some friends, and she said, I, I think you could actually handle this, David. Yeah, I, it, it wouldn't surprise me, because the hereditary struck me as, like, I laughed throughout the whole thing, but but right. I wasn't laughing sure. at it, but I was laughing at how good it was at, 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 at re- revealing these things, and, 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 you know, the setup and the punch, I don't want to say punchline, but you know what I mean, the, the, the horrible moments, the images, and the ideas, oh, these are great. <laughs> it's like one, one thing after another, like a good, good comedy set. So final question, um, our listener Katie wants to know your thoughts on hope. What's the most perfect example of the importance of hope in the middle of all of this, which I took to mean all the horrors reflected in the big loop, the, the terrors that we behold on the news. What, what role does hope play in your storytelling? Hope is in the small moments. Uh, and, and knowing that all these small moments, is, it's like, a good life is just an alignment of all a bunch of good small moments. And you hope the sm- good small moments outweigh the bad small moments or bad big moments. Uh, but on the, rel- on the relatively universal scale, these are all small moments. And I think about this question a lot because I'm so grateful I have my dogs because every morning I look at them and I got three unconditionally loving beings waiting for me to engage with them. And just not because I'm feeding them, although that maybe the conditioning into that goes into that. But I'm not going to think about that. But the way they cuddle, you know, just it brings me so much joy. Like this is how my day is starting. The next hour I'm going to get this again. The hour after that I'm going to get that again. Like I'm going to keep this going. I, I keep these moments going. And that's all like that's that's really all that gives me hope um, on this on the scale that I can control. That makes sense to me. It's just like sort of like stringing a strand of little moments together. Yeah, yeah, and that that's just, a, that's a good day, and you have a bunch of good days, that's a good year, you have a bunch of good years, that's a good life. Uh, and then, hopefully, you know, outside of that, I don't know, because there's people, you know, I, I don't know what the percentage is, half, less than, more than half yeah. of the world's population, don't have too many options to to align their lives that way, to align a whole bunch of, like if you're working a shitty job, because you have to eat. Like you just have, you can't refuse this job and you got a shitty boss. I don't know where you look for hope yeah. in that, in minute to minute, day to day, in that. And for that, I don't have an answer. Um, all I know is having been through years of that. Um, yeah. But again, I'm privileged because I live in an area of the, of the continent that you could climb out of that if you're luck, with a little bit of luck and good friends. Um, I, don't, I don't know the answer to that. Um, all I know is my own little, if you could sort of somehow manage that to string those moments together, uh, that's, that's really all you can hope for. If, if someone has a, be- a better picture of what hope looks like, uh, I'm all for it too. I'll listen to that too. 
Well, Paul, thank you for spending this wonderful moment with me. This has been a really wonderful conversation. Thanks for adding to my another good moment in my day. (laughs) If you'd like to hear an extended cut of this interview, including a story about Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, then become a patron of Radio Drama Revival on Patreon at patreon.com slash radiodramarevival. You can follow us on Twitter, at Radiodrama, visit our website at radiodramarevival.com, and buy merch at our marvelous store. That's radiodramarevival.com slash shop. A big thank you to everyone who applied for the social media manager position. We are pleased to announce that Anne Baird has joined our team and is now writing wonderful tweets at a dizzying pace. She is great. Anne, you are great. You can follow Anne on Twitter at Anne C. Baird, or follow all the wild and wonderful stuff that Anne, Katie, and Will do over at hughouse.productions. Folks, the time has come. Let's have line producer Will Williams take us home with this week's Moment of Will. Hey listeners, so last episode you might remember that I asked you what other sci-fi TV show had a lot of cast in common with The Twilight Zone. Well, the answer is Star Trek. Most well-known is that William Shatner appeared on an episode of The Twilight Zone. Less commonly known is that he actually appeared twice. On top of that, Leonard Nimoy was on an episode, Montgomery Scott was on an episode, and George Takei was on an episode. Not to mention, a ton of Star Trek guest stars were also guest stars in The Twilight Zone. Lots of crossover there. And hey, listener, you matter. Things matter, and you're one of them. And now let us sound the traditional end of episode gong. Thank you. The sound of that gong tells me it's time for the credits. This podcast is recorded in Washington, D.C., which is the unceded territory of the Piscataway Indian Nation and the Piscataway Kanoi Tribe. Our theme music is Danger Diggy Doo by DJ Stranger Danger. You can find his music on SoundCloud. Our line producer and associate interviews producer is Will Williams. Our senior interviews producer is Eli McElveen. Our associate producer is Sean Howard. Our researcher is Heather Cohen. Our social media manager is Anne Baird. Our submissions editors are Elena Fernandez-Collins and Rashika Rao. Our executive producer is Fred Greenhouch. I'm your host, David Reinstrom, and this has been Radio Drama Revival. All storytellers welcome. <laughs>